Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. A young man out for a morning stroll has no idea his entire reality is about to change when he sees the man in the pink shirt. And then we travel to England in the 1600s to meet a man who got more than he bargained for when he won a lawsuit. He thought he was just going to get a set of drums. Instead, he became witness to the very first recorded poltergeist haunting today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. My back's feeling a little bit better, so there's that. I wanted to warn you, I still am on muscle relaxers. You listen to the madness of yesterday's episode, but I, I think we got it rained in here. I think we got it rained in here. But someone who always relaxes me day in and day out, everyone give a that sound that sounded dirty. Everyone give a round of applause to today's pilot, Jan De La Rosa. Woo! Come on in, Jan. Doing cartwheels into Dead Rabbit Command. Jan De La Rosa has earned this privilege in a unique way. No one else has done this yet. I always talk about, I don't know, I always talk about it, I mentioned it like three times. I have an Amazon wish list on my show notes. In my show notes, I have an Amazon wish list. And they bought me a really cool book off that wish list. It's called Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting. So that's really, really cool. And it's about the storytelling aspect. <laughs> You're like, Jason, what is this, like episode 817? You know how to podcast. This is about the storytelling side of it. And it's really, really interesting. It's really cool talking about the storytelling aspect. And since that's what I do, this is the book I wanted. So Jan, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the show financially, I totally get it. I totally, totally get it. Just help spread the word about the show. That helps out. Just talking to your friends, talking to your families, talking about it on your socials. All of that stuff really, really helps out a lot. Jan, let's go ahead and toss you the hair hang glider. We're going to leave behind Dead Rabbit Command. We are going to glide all the way out to Alberta, Canada. We land in Alberta, Canada. It's a hot July day. The year is 1980, and we're walking around the streets, and it's only 8 in the morning. It's 8 a.m., and we're walking around Alberta, and we see another guy walking in front of us. Now, this guy, we're going to call him Jake. Jake is walking down this alleyway. He goes, I don't know where I was in relation to everywhere else in the city. Like, I'm walking through the city, and then I'm in an alleyway. And I remember getting there, but I don't know where I'm at right now. But as I'm walking down this alleyway, I see standing there a man, a normal-looking man, wearing a pink shirt with black trousers. I don't know where I'm at, but I know I'm in an alley, and I'm just going to keep walking through the alley. Maybe then I'll figure where I'm at. I just walk past this guy in the pink shirt and the black trousers. And as I'm walking down this alleyway, I start to hear him mumble. 
He hears this guy mumbling. Here's the guy in the pink shirt mumbling. He can't make out what he's saying. <laughs> Do you really want to know? It's some guy just standing in an alleyway at 8 in the morning. But, you know, he, again, he's wearing a pink shirt, black trousers. He doesn't look like a hobo. He doesn't look like he's super out of place. But the mumbling, right? It's the mumbling. You could be standing next to a businessman in an elevator, but if he was facing the corner going, Mommy doesn't want me. Mommy doesn't want me. You you don't care how he's dressed, right? You want to get out of that elevator as quickly as possible. Well, he's walking past the guy in the pink shirt, and the guy's still continuing to mumble. He can't hear what he's saying. But right when Jake passes the man in the pink shirt, he hears, clear as day, the man go, If only you could know the clock. And at that moment, the man in the pink shirt grabs Jake's arm. And Jake goes to shake him free, but he can't. This is an impossibly strong grip. And Jake is trying so hard to get free. And the man in the pink shirt is just holding his arm, completely restraining this guy. And at that point, Jake starts to hear footsteps running down the alley towards him. Can't see him because his back is to these footsteps. But fight or flight flight instinct happened when the guy grabbed his arm and he couldn't get free. But now, I mean, there's a complete panic. Obviously, this has been some sort of setup, some sort of ambush. And he hears these feet running up behind him. And he turns. He turns his head as far as he can. And he looks. And his eye level, when he turns completely over, all he can see is a pair of shoulders. Whatever is coming up behind him is much, much taller than he is. He feels two strong hands reach up underneath his armpits and begin to lift him up. His body begins to feel light. And the hands are able to lift him up even further. He's now in the grasp of two of these individuals. He's being lifted off the ground. And at that point, the man in the pink shirt lets go. And then starts to ascend into the sky. (laughs) Now, I've never been mugged. I've never been robbed. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's not normal. And as he's watching the man in the pink shirt slowly rise up into the sky, Jake, just hovering a few inches off the ground, is now flying up into the air. And then instantly, he is naked, laying on the cold pavement of this alleyway. He looks to his left. He looks to his right. He's alone. But naked, right? I mean, that is reassuring. Whatever happened to him, these assailants are gone, but he's completely naked. And he quickly realizes, "Uh uh-oh, not only am I naked... But everything I had on me, this is interesting because I wouldn't have thought about this because again, I've never been mugged and I've never been naked in an alleyway. He comes to, he's naked in the alleyway. He goes, everything I have was in my jacket. My car keys, all my keys, my house key, everything's gone, my wallet. I have nothing. I am, I am as I was born just now. I own nothing in this alleyway. So even if you do get up, and you are able to cover yourself up. Like there happens to be a big barrel there with suspenders on it. You're walking through the city. You're still, you're going all the way home. And he starts to hear more footsteps. He's like, oh man, not this again. So he jumps into a dumpster that's nearby. 
the only the only thing that I can imagine worse than jumping into a dumpster is jumping into a dumpster naked. He's in this dumpster and he hears people walk down the alleyway. And he goes, okay, good. Whatever was out there, they didn't see me. And then he'll be like, okay, I got to figure this out, right? I, I just can't stay in this dumpster any longer. It's super <laughs> disgusting. Stuff's getting in my butt crack. And as he's thinking about crawling out, he hears more footsteps coming. He's like, okay, better wait just a little bit longer. Now, remember, this story took. <laughs> this story started at 8 a.m. He stays in that dumpster until the sun sets. He says, I kept hearing footsteps walking back and forth, coming down this alleyway, and I didn't want to risk it. I didn't know what was going on. But after nightfall, he gets back out of the dumpster. He uses some trash bags to give himself some clothing. He's like making a nice little dress. The rats sewed this up for me. You're the belle of the ball, Cinderella. He jumps out and he's walking down the street in garbage bags. And he goes, okay, first I got to go and I got to call the police. I got to let the police know. <laughs> space aliens or whatever in the world that was could be an invasion coming i'm gonna go find the police and file a report and hope hopefully get a ride home and as he's headed towards the police station whoop 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 that's not the juggalos showing up that's not the gathering no what happens is a police officer sees this man walking down the street wearing nothing but garbage bags and he pulls over and, and gets the story so the officer takes him right to the police station and Jake tells the story I just told you. And the officers are writing it down. They probably stopped writing stuff down 20 minutes ago. They're like, oh, this is one of those kooks. But as he's filing this report with the police, he's like, yeah, and then the guy with the pink shirt flew away, and then the next thing I knew, I was flying away, and then I was naked, and the cops are like, okay, we're going to tell you exactly what happened. You were raped. And Jake's like, uh, no, no, I wasn't. And the cops are like, yeah, that's what happened. Um, you were raped in that alleyway. And that's, that's what, that, that's what it is. I hate to break the news to you, but, and Jake goes, wait, what, what are you talking about? And the officers refuse to investigate this any further, which is horrible because even if they're right, a man was raped at eight in the morning. They're like, oh, man, call us next time when you're brutally murdered. The police refused to investigate this case. They said that this man was raped. It had nothing to do with aliens. It had nothing to do with UFOs. No one was flying around. You were raped. Good day, sir. <laughs> Again, they should investigate at least that. When Jake ends up telling this story, he says that was the end of it. They never called me back, even if I was raped, which I wasn't. That's not what this was. But they should have at least investigated that. All I know is I was walking down the street. Something impossible happened. Multiple things impossible happened. And no one believes me. Not even the police. And also the Alberta Police Department should investigate sex crimes. I don't know why they are not. This story came from thinkaboutitdocs.com, one of my favorite websites. They got it from ufoorganization.com, and they're the ones who took the report about this young man who got assaulted. I mean, at the very least, he was attacked. This is one of those stories that's really interesting because, one, it takes place early in the morning. We covered a story, what was it, earlier this week, late last week, where it takes place like at 7 in the morning. That's so unusual for UFO stuff, really any sort of paranormal activity tends to take place at night. 
Eight in the morning, broad daylight, walking down an alleyway, an alien abduction, or so, who, what? I mean, how would you classify this? I, the only reason I keep going back to alien is because they were floating away. But in the lore, I mean, could it be demons? Could it be fey folk? Hopefully not. I don't, I'm not a fan of the fey folk stuff. I think it's kind of boring. But, I mean, if, I was, if a bunch of fairies showed up and made me float away, it'd be the most exciting thing that happened to me that week. But, in general... Uh, I think it's kind of lame. Um, so, but I keep going back to the alien thing and the idea of the police said not investigate. The idea of the police saying, "Sorry, son, you got raped. We're not going to investigate that either." Is so bizarre, right? That sounds that's so absurd. That's such an absurd cover up. And then, if you are right, Mister Officer, let's go. Let's go. Take me to the hospital. Let's start collecting DNA. Let's do these kits. Let's solve this crime against me. I think it's. I think I was abducted by aliens. You think it was something much, much more terrestrial? Okay, even by your logic, let's do the. Let's figure this out. Call me back. I'm gonna call you back. It almost feels like a cover up, and you have to wonder: Is this? This is always the thing with paranormal stuff, and we'll be talking about this later this week. But I'm starting to come to the conclusion that this stuff is way more common than we think. Not this particular event in and of itself, but paranormal activity, be it alien or ghost or demon is so common, and most people uh, don't tell anybody. Because if you tell people, people are going to think you're a weirdo, a quack. And the thing is, is think about it like a mugging, right? Let's say that you get mugged in your city, and you don't want to tell anyone because it makes you feel weak. Right, you're not. I'm just using that example. Right, <laughs> someone just got mugged and they're sitting at home. And they're like, "Oh, nothing but a relaxing episode of Dead Rap Radio. That'll cheer me up." I'm not saying that, but let's say you get mugged and you go, "Man, I wish I had been stronger. I wish I had taken those jujitsu classes. Whatever, whatever. I've never been mugged, but I'm just using this for an example. You get mugged, you feel weak, so you get embarrassed. And you don't tell anyone. I actually think that happens a lot. And then some people get mugged and they go report it to the police. Actually, I know that happens a lot, but I know a lot of criminals that got uh, mugged and stuff like that they got jacked and they're not going to report it to police. okay now <laughs> it's getting super complicated my point is is that let's say that 10 people get mugged in a city the first four or five people may not report it for whatever reason i mean uh, it's not worth it that guy mugged me if i go to the po- i'm not getting the stuff back if i go to the police then i my name's on a whole bunch of paperwork my address is on a whole bunch of paperwork and it turns out that this guy's a member of like ms13 or the trinitarios or whatever it's just not worth it i'm just not going to go down that path anymore i i bet you that happens Bet you that happened. And so out of all these muggings, you maybe have six people reported or four people reported. And taking that to the paranormal aspect, at least when you report a mugging, people don't roll their eyes and go, uh-huh, sure, buddy, you're all beat up, you have no wallet, you're like, ah. Oh. They're like, uh-huh, tell me another crazy story. Like, at least with a mugging, people would go, you might tell your friends and family that it happened, you probably would, right? Because, again, you're like, hey, you got to borrow money. Why do you need to borrow money? Oh, I got mugged. My point is, the analogy's gone sideways. Maybe I should stop recording on muscle relaxers. My point is, is that I don't think people report every crime. And I don't think people report every UFO, alien, all that stuff, because it makes you look insane. And it shouldn't. And what happens is, because no one is saying this, there's a very, very small amount of these reports coming out. And so, less and less people say it, because they don't want to be grouped in with that 
constituency, that that population, because they're a bunch of weirdos. When it turns out that if everyone reported the time they saw a ghost or the time they had an encounter that just was unbelievable, then you would realize like 70% of the country has had this stuff. I've always said my big complaint about UFO photos is I go, it used to be back in the 70s when no one had cameras on them, we'd get maybe four to five good UFO photos a year. And you understood that because not everyone had a camera in their car. And I said, now that everyone has cameras on them all the times we get four or five good ufo photos a year and i said that to me makes it seem fake but now i'm thinking about it you may take a photo like there may be some really really good ufo photos out there and people take it and it's this terrifying event and then they just go i'm not going to share this with anyone like obviously there's evidence of this but I'm not going to go to coast to coast AM. I don't want to have a bunch of people knocking on my door. That's actually a great segue for our next story. Because when you go into, when you start examining the world of paranormal, you will get all sorts of people coming and asking you these questions and trying to get proof of not believing you, calling you a kook, and it becomes a huge thing. Great segue. Jan, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind Alberta, Canada. We're headed all the way out to Tedworth. England. First off, I want to give a shout out to Cold Blackwater. Cold Blackwater started this new subreddit called The Church of Charles Fort. And I'm telling you, this stuff that he digs up is so obscure, which is what I love, right? And what this show loves. So if you're a fan of the show, check that out. I'm a, I'm a mod on that, but this dude does all the heavy lifting. I like cross post and stuff. I'm pretty busy with the show, but man, he has a lot of great stuff coming out. And this is where I got this story. And I also want to give a shout out to the website burialsandbeyond.com because that's where I got the bulk of my information for the story. So shout out to both of those guys. The year is 1661. Now, nowadays, this little town is called Tidworth. But back in the fabulous year of 1661... Black Plague was all the rage. People were still trying to figure out what to do with that brush. Is it for their teeth? Is it for their hair? Nobody knew for sure. But in the town of Tedworth, that's in Wiltshire, England, there was a man named John Mompesson. Now, John Mompesson, he was a landowner. He was an excise officer. So that's the guy who's not making you do jumping jacks. They hadn't been invented yet. But he, like, formulated taxes and stuff like that. And, like, hey, give me money. He's basically just a goon. And he was an officer in the local militia. Very, very high member of the Society of Tedworth. And he's visiting the nearby village of Ludgershall. And he's like walking downtown and everyone's like, hey, what's up, John? Everyone's giving him high fives and stuff like that. And he's like, yeah, give me some money, dude. I like the high five and everything. Give me some money. I'm that excise officer. And as he's walking through town, he hears a... Now, to you and me, that's a pretty good song. Trademark. I just came up with that. To you and me, that's a jazzy little tune. But to John... He, okay, to be fair, that guy wasn't even that rhythmic. It was this hobo walking through the streets of Ludgershall, banging on this drum. And he would do it all day long. Now, John is just visiting this town, right? You feel bad for the people who always live here, but this guy is constantly banging on this drum. He's not like the village idiot or anything. This is his job. He's a busker. He's basically a performer on the street, so people throw coins into a hat. And John can't stand it. He thinks this guy is such a nuisance that he actually confronts him. And he finds out, because this guy, you know, John is 
high up in society. He's able to interrogate this dude. It turns out that this drummer does not have a license for busking. He actually has forged documents saying that the government allowed him to play his drum to make money, but that was not the case. So John ends up reporting him to the authorities himself, basically, and he has him taken to court and punished. You can't forge documents and play a really, really bad drummer. And the court is hearing this and they're like exhibiting the guys all banging the drum. The judge is like, stop, stop, stop. John wins the case. Basically, this guy, I neglected to name him earlier, William Drury was his name. William Drury loses the case, and they're like, you can no longer busk in this city, and you got to go to jail for forging these documents. So as William is arrested and he's being taken away to jail, the court tells John, hey, congratulations, you won this case. Um, You know what? And here's the thing. We have this drum here, right? Why don't you keep the drum? Almost as like a trophy. <laughs> it's a really weird case. That'd be crazy if that's how stuff happened this day. They're like, oh, that guy assaulted you with this machete? Well, <laughs> as he's going to prison, here's the machete. You're like, ah, there's still pieces of your face on it. They give John the drum. And then <laughs> I imagine the bailiff is walking away and then he stops and he turns back to John and he goes, oh, also, should have mentioned this earlier, but... William is associated with a band of magic-wielding gypsies. There's a lot of of witches that like to hang out with that troop that William was a part of, but I'm sure that won't affect your life in any way possible. The fact that you broke apart a group of gypsies that are very, very powerful powerful sorcerers, I, I don't think there'll be any problem going forward in your life, dear sir. And so John, who is not a superstitious person, takes the drum. It is a trophy, right? And this unlocks the very first recorded poltergeist story in British history. So we always have old stories with ghosts, right? Ghosts have been around for a long time. A poltergeist is more than just the shadowy figure walking past the graveyard. It's more than your loved one appearing in your little hovel being like, clean this place up. It's more than that. A poltergeist is all about sound and activity. It's all about the wrappings. It's all about stuff getting thrown off shelves. This is the very first time that we know of when this happened in England. He takes his drum back home to Tedworth. And almost right away, this poltergeist activity begins. Late at night, they begin hearing this loud banging on the outside of the house. And they begin to hear loud banging on the doors. Now, you're thinking... (laughs) You're thinking we're under assault from a bunch of zombies, right? It's happening externally in this house. And again, they know that he's pissed off a bunch of gypsies. And I think that's really where they're first thinking. Like, oh, they're coming around. They're banging it. Grab the musket. I don't think muskets were... They had to basically like get pitchforks to go take these guys out. There's no one outside the house. But then the next night, boom, 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 boom. Run out with your pitchfork. Nothing. This goes on for a while. And then the noises start to happen on the roof. Now, I, I should say this guy, because he's so high up in society, I keep saying a house. I should have painted the picture better. It's a, it's an estate. 
with maids and butlers. Like, this guy's really, are you imagining, like, a little tiny straw house? No, there was this grand estate, which actually make it harder to find the source of the noise, right? You have more ground to cover, but it's this grand estate, and you would hear the banging on the wall, and when you went out, no one was there. Now they're hearing it on the roof of the house, which is far more alarming. Because even if you thought the idea that there was just a bunch of gypsies outside banging on the walls, now you're thinking, how did they get on the roof? Right? They'd be super easy to catch up there, but when you look out, when you poke your head out the window, you don't see anyone up there. The drumming was relentless. It was happening every single night. And at one point... They did have muskets, because I looked a little bit farther down in my notes. John grabbed his pistol and began running around the house trying to find the source of the noises. But again, whenever they get to the noise, it's gone. And now you're hearing it in an opposite end of the house. And you have this house full of John and his family and a bunch of butlers and maids. And you have a madman running around with a gun, truly driven mad at this point. A month after this all started... The drumming gets even louder, and now they're no longer hearing it against the exterior walls. It's coming from inside the house. You can't rationalize it anymore. You're no longer thinking, ah, it's just someone playing doorbell ditch. We haven't invented doorbells yet either. But now you're sitting in the kitchen and you're hearing it from the interior wall that leads in the living room. At this point, your legs are tired. You've already run around so many times looking for the source of the noise. You hear it. What starts to happen is the sounds begin to center themselves, almost like they moved in from the outside. Now they're inside, and now they're focused on the kids' rooms. All the rooms that have the kids in them, their kids, John and his wife's kids, now that's where they're starting to hear these noises more. And so this is when you start to have modern-day skeptics go, A lot of times when we have poltergeist activity, it's pranks, and a lot of times it's kids playing pranks. Like when we look at Jeff the Talking Mongoose, this is an episode we did a long time ago, put it in the show notes. People said, uh, you know, it's really weird that all this stuff was centered around the the kid. And then uh, we had the Zargoza, was it Zargoza, I think? Goblin, same thing. You started to hear these noises, and they started to assume it was the kids involved. So modern-day skeptics kind of, at this point in the story, go, "Eh, it's probably fake, it's probably the kids. People of the time, though, they're kind of worried. (laughs) Worried that this demonic knocking is now in the house, and it's centered around these kids. And not only is the knocking going on in the kids' bedrooms, which would kind of point towards the kids were the perpetrators all along. Let's, Let's assume that, right? Let's assume that the kids were pulling pranks. The kids, the kids are now floating in their bedrooms. That's kind of that's kind of a hard prank to pull off. There's wood carvings. It's it's beautiful. The wood carvings involved in the story because it was super popular in its day. There's wood carvings of kids floating. There's wood carvings of the devil dancing on the roof. It's really cool. The photos will be in the show notes. But the kids, their beds start shaking late at night. They could hear horrible scratching noises underneath their bed. And the kids were shaken. Oh, which is, which of, listen, that's not good for a kid, right? I don't know how much you guys read horrible news websites, but shaking kids is never good. Their tiny little brains aren't built for that. So the kids are being shaken. They're floating around. I can just imagine John, like, going to kiss the kids goodnight. He opens the door. They're, like, floating around. And he uses this horrible scratching underneath your bed. And he's like, I'll just say goodnight from here. I love you. You would think at this point, 
right? Whether or not you are a skeptic, get rid of the drum. Just get rid of the drum, right? This is obviously some sort of cursed item. Just get rid of the drum. He doesn't. He continues to keep the drum. William, William, remember, he's in custody, and he's sentenced for deportation. Destination, America. Thanks a lot. They're going to send him to America. And they ask him about this. He is interrogating. He's asked, hey, because again, John's a very high in society. What is going on at his house? And goes, oh, yeah, I did that. I used magic spells and I cursed the drum. And what are you going to do about it, right? I obviously have the powers of the Dark Lord in me. And they ship him out to America. Even after confessing that he has the ability to possess a drum, or maybe not possess it himself, it has his face on it. It's like, beat me now. <laughs> He's cursed his drum. They ship him out to America, and we don't know what happened to him after that. But back to the house, back to the John house, this ordeal lasts two years. Right? We're looking at 1663, and this thing is still going on. At this point, the drumming has not stopped. John still has possession of the drum. The kids are floating out of their beds. The servants are floating out of their beds. Some of them, or this is even scarier, some of them were pinned down. They could feel a force holding them down to their bed. People are constantly, constantly, this house is in a state of chaos. Servants and John and people are grabbing weaponry and running through the house trying to fight this thing trying to find the source of the noise. But now it's even more than that. You're starting to have panting noises. You can hear this hideous <sighs> coming from certain sectors of the house. The smell of sulfur. People are automatically thinking that this is demonic. And the drumming, don't forget the drumming. The drumming is constant. They're constantly hearing this banging. It's so loud. Neighbors start complaining about you're, I mean, can you imagine having a house so haunted that the homeowners association has to get involved? People want to check this house out. It's become really popular in this course of two years since this all started. You have the neighbors wanting to come over to see what's going on. You have people traveling from all over the country to see what's going on. At one point, you had a blacksmith show up. You know, big buff, burly blacksmith. I'm not afraid of no ghosts. He walks in there. He's staying there, and a pair of pinchers, not like a pincher bug, but you know those big heavy metal tongs? Start flying around the house and pinching his nose. Now, I don't care how big of a skeptic you are. I don't care how big of a science-minded dude you are. I think after this, you might be able to explain the first time it happened somehow, but after the third or fourth snip of the nose, by what was he still doing there even after the first one? I'd be like, nope, I'm gone. And there's a lot of stories like that, like priests showing up and getting scared out of their mind. This ends up attracting one of the very first paranormal investigators as well. January 1663, it attracted the attention of Joseph Glanville. Now, you had had demonologists and you had people working for the church investigating this stuff, but he's really considered one of the first people to be cataloging paranormal events, not necessarily just... He was a clergyman, but this was like raining frogs and stuff like that. Like he was looking into the paranormal world as a whole type of guy. And he shows up and he does an investigation on it. And he wrote a book called A Blow at Modern Sadochism in some philosophical considerations about witchcraft. This is his famous book he wrote. And 
in this book, he mentions it. So this is how we got a lot of this information was from Joseph Glanville's investigation. And he goes, this is a legit paranormal event. The kids have nothing to do with this. And so that the fact that he specified that means that I think even back then people thought the kids were a part of it. He specified, no. He goes, the kids, the kids are like floating around the room. He's like, hmm, I, I remember being a child. I don't remember being able to do that. So as the first paranormal investigation, this is really cool. The first paranormal investigator at the very first documented poltergeist activity, and you have these two things collide, and he goes, no, this is totally legit. This ends up becoming a super popular book around the same time, becomes a popular story. It's starting to be written into plays. So how does the story end? How does this story end? This is so fascinating. I love this story. There was a book published in 1827 called The Works of the Reverend John Wesley. This was volume three, and it had all of these type of bizarre stories and just stuff about being a minister as well. And in this book in 1827, it it wraps the story up. And this gen- this will happen a lot of times with phenomenon. You'll see a glut of news articles when it first happens, when the stories first pop up, and then there's never any follow-up. We did that story a long time ago. It's one of the very creepy episodes of Dead Rabbit Radio about the man who died while watching The Conjuring 2 in India. I'll put that in the show notes. I'm not going to give away the ending for that story, but that one's really weird. And I spent a long time trying to find a follow-up an ending to that story and no one ever published anything else. So either they don't know anything else or after the initial event, when stuff comes down and maybe there is a rational answer for it, never gets published in the newspaper because it's not super exciting. But in 1827, in the books, the works of Reverend John Wesley, it wraps this story up. And it said at some point, John came forward and said, it's all fake. It was all fake. The drumming was fake. The kids levitating was fake. The scratches, the noise, it was all fake. I found out, I wasn't a part of it being fake, but I found out it was fake, and I found out who faked it, and that's it. And people were really disappointed by that, right? Because obviously there was nothing like this ever before in the world of the paranormal where you're having this much activity. People were disappointed by it, but at this point, it had gone on for over two years, right? And so, in 1663, he goes, yeah, it was all fake. And so, was it the kids, right? Everyone's thinking that it must have been the kids. Joseph Glanville was fooled. We were all fooled. But it happens. We see a lot of fakery in this stuff. It's interesting that they faked the very first poltergeist encounter, because nowadays, you could easily fake it, because you have a bunch of stuff to base off. But he said it was fake. And so, that had happened at some point... Around 1663, he admitted it was fake. But in the book of the works of Reverend John Wesley, written in 1827, there's more information. This book says, yeah, we know that John eventually admitted that it was fake. But years later, years and years later, one of John's sons was in college. And the the story was so popular that he'd still be asked questions about this. He's in college and some guy, one of his friends says, hey, why did your dad fake the whole fake the whole haunting thing? Like, what was the purpose of all of that? And the son, who's now an adult, right, attending college, goes, oh, he didn't fake that. And the guy, okay, maybe he didn't fake it, but, I mean, like, the kids faked it, right? Like, it was all fake. I mean, like, what was the point? Were you guys just having fun? And the son goes, oh, no, we didn't fake it. It wasn't fake. So 
Many people were coming to the house, dude. We were getting visitors from all over. My dad couldn't take it anymore. Here's a quote from this book. The resort of gentlemen to my father's house was so great, he could not bear the expense. He therefore took no pains to confute the report that he had found out the cheat. Although he and I and all the family knew the account which was published to be punctually true. Unquote. It was easier to say this was all fake and I found out who did it. Because every time someone showed up, dude, it's tea and crumpets time. He had to provide for these people who were traveling from all over to sit in his house. And just financially, right, feeding them, giving them these treats. You also have a bunch of dudes, <laughs> dudes spending the night in your house. You're getting pestered by people. All of this stuff, he just said, it's fake. It was all fake. I found out who did it. Sorry, guys. And everyone started to walk away. All the looky-loos went away. All the paranormal researchers disappeared. And the house settled down. But the event really, really happened. Fascinating, fascinating poltergeist story. It would be easier to come out and say it was all fake than to continue to deal with the looky-loos and the paranormal investigators and your neighbors. Because obviously it's so loud. What I find fascinating is it seems once he declared it was fake, the phenomenon stopped. I mean, according to the reports we have, the sun wasn't saying, yeah, and every we just got used to the constant drumming. I think it stopped. Which would make sense because here was a man who was very proud of the position he had in society. And when he came across this bum banging on this drum, he used his authority to get that man thrown in prison. He did commit a crime. He did forge those documents. But he used his authority, he used his place in society to have this man lose his livelihood, lose his drum, and then shipped off to another continent. And what's a better way to attack that guy? than to attack his authority, to attack his pride. The phantom drumming, the noises, the children twirling around in the air, that all makes you feel very powerless. You can't stop it. You can't protect the people you love the most. But the fact that it pushed him to step in front of society and say it was all fake, all of it, means that he wasn't just a victim. People didn't see him as a victim of this satanic force, this unknowable, diabolical menace. It made him a fool. That's a curse, right? That's a curse. I guess the moral of the story is be careful who you cross. You may think you're going after someone more lowly than you, someone who can't strike back. <laughs> what type of person do you think I am? You just got to be careful who you make your enemy. They may seem like they're harmless, just some bum. But they may end up being someone so powerful, they can kill you and leave you alive. They can destroy your reputation and make you live out the rest of your natural life as a known fraud or a fool. Leave the man standing. Destroy his reputation. That is a truly, truly 
evil curse. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. TikTok is at DeadRabbitRadio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.